Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. In an email dated December 22, 2016, Bert recounted for Avein his conversation with Symes. Through a trusted third party, I have reached out to the very influential person I mentioned in Luxembourg concerning Project A. There is an interest and an understanding for the need to establish such a channel. But the individual emphasized that at this moment, with so much intense interest in the Congress and the media over the question of cyber hacking and who ordered what, Project A was too explosive to discuss. The individual agreed to discuss it again after the new year. I trust the individual's instincts on this. Welcome to the underworld. I love America. It's been my home all my life. Ladies and gentlemen, the very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. my home all my life. If you don't know the past, you're only doomed to repeat it. Welcome to Public Access America. This is your history. This is your country. This is America. Join us in listening to some of history's America's best speeches. Created by Jarcodes Productions. Go back in time with us right now on Public Access America. According to Bert, the very influential person referenced in his email was Symes, and the reference to a trusted third party was a fabrication, as no such third party existed. Project A was a term that BMT created for Avayan's effort to help establish a communications channel between Russia and the Trump team, which he used in light of the sensitivities surrounding what Avayan was requesting, especially in light of the recent attention to Russia's influence in the U.S. presidential election. According to Burt, his report that there was interest in a communications channel reflected Symes's views, not necessarily those of the transition team, and in any event, Burt acknowledged that he added some hype to that sentence to make it sound like there was more interest from the transition team than may have actually existed. Avayan replied to Burt's email on the same day, saying thank you. All clear. According to Avayan, this statement indicated that he did not want the outreach to continue. Bert spoke to Avayan some time thereafter about his attempt to make contact with the Trump team, that the current environment made it impossible. Bert did not recall discussing Avayan's request with Symes again, nor did he recall speaking to anyone else about the request. In the first quarter of 2017, Avayan met again with Putin and other Russian officials. 
At that meeting, Putin asked about Avayan's attempt to build relations with the Trump administration and Avayan recounted his lack of success. Putin continued to inquire about Avayan's efforts to connect to the Trump administration in several subsequent quarterly meetings. Avayan also told Putin's chief of staff that he had been subpoenaed by the FBI. As part of that conversation, he reported that he had been asked by the FBI about whether he had worked to create a back channel between the Russian government and the Trump administration. According to Avayan, the official showed no emotion in response to this report and did not appear to care. Carter Page contact with Deputy Prime Minister Arkady Vorkovich. In December 2016, more than two months after he was removed from the Trump campaign, former campaign foreign policy advisor Carter Paiyane visited Moscow in an atom tea to pursue business opportunities. According to Konstantin Kilimnik, Paul Manafort's associate, Page also gave some individuals in Russia the impression that he had maintained his connections to President-elect Trump. In a December 8, 2016 email intended for Manafort, Kilimnik wrote, Carter Page is in Moscow today, sending messages he is authorized to talk to Russia on behalf of DT on a range of issues of mutual interest, including Ukraine. On December 9, 2016, Page went to dinner with NES employees Shlomo Weber and Andrei Krichkovich. Weber had contacted Vorkovich to let him know that Page was in town and to invite him to stop by the dinner IFHE wished to do so, and Vorkovich came to the restaurant for a few minutes to meet with Page. Vorkovich congratulated Page on Trump's election and expressed interest in starting a dialogue between the United States and Russia. Vorkovich asked Page if he could facilitate connecting Vorkovich with individuals involved in the transition to be in a discussion of future cooperation. Contacts with and through Michael T. Flynn. Incoming National Security Advisor Michael Flynn was the transition team's primary conduit for communications with the Russian ambassador and dealt with Russia on two sensitive matters during the transition period, a United Nations Security Council vote and the Russian government's reaction to the United States's imposition of sanctions for Russian interference in the 2016 election. Despite Kushner's conclusion that Kislak did not wield influence inside the Russian government, the transition team turned to Flynn's relationship with Kislak on both issues. As to the sanctions, Flynn spoke by phone to K.T. McFarland, his incoming deputy, to prepare for his call to Kislak. McFarland was with the president-elect and other senior members of the transition team at Mar-a-Lago at the time. Although transition officials at Mar-a-Lago had some concern about possible Russian reactions to the sanctions, the investigation did not identify evidence that the president-elect asked Flynn to make any request to Kislak. Flynn asked Kislak not to escalate the situation in response to U.S. sanctions imposed on December 29, 2016, and Kislak later reported to Flynn that Russia acceded to that request. A. United Nations vote on Israeli settlements. On December 21, 2016, Egypt submitted a resolution to the United Nations Security Council calling on Israel to cease settlement activities in Palestinian territory. The Security Council, which includes Russia, was scheduled to vote on the resolution the following day. There was speculation in the media that the Obama administration would not oppose the resolution. V. According to Flynn, the transition team regarded the vote as a significant issue and wanted to support Israel by opposing the resolution. 
On December 22, 2016, multiple members of the transition team, as well as President-elect Trump, communicated with foreign government officials to determine their views on the resolution and to rally support to delay the vote or defeat the resolution. Kushner led the effort for the transition team, Flynn was responsible for the Russian government. Minutes after an early morning phone call with Kushner on December 22, Flynn called Kislak. According to Flynn, he informed Kislak about the vote and the transition team's opposition to the resolution, and requested that Russia vote against or delay the resolution. Later that day, President-elect Trump spoke with Egyptian President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi about the vote. Ultimately, Egypt postponed the vote. On December 23, 2016 Malaysia, New Zealand, Senegal, and Venezuela resubmitted the resolution. Throughout the day, members of the transition team continued to talk with foreign leaders about the resolution, with Flynn continuing to lead the outreach with the Russian government through Kislak. When Flynn again spoke with Kislak, Kislak informed Flynn that if the resolution came to a vote, Russia would not vote against it. The resolution later passed 14-0, with the United States abstaining. U.S. sanctions against Russia Flynn was also the transition team member who spoke with the Russian government when the Obama administration imposed sanctions and other measures against Russia in response to Russia's interference in the 2016 presidential election. On December 28, 2016, then-President Obama signed Executive Order 13757, which took effect at 12.01 a.m. the following day and imposed sanctions on nine Russian individuals and entities. On December 29, 2016, the Obama administration also expelled 35 Russian government officials and closed two Russian government-owned compounds in the United States. During the rollout of the sanctions, President-elect Trump and multiple transition team senior officials, including McFarland, Steve Bannon, and Reince Priebus, were staying at the Mar-a-Lago Club in Palm Beach, Florida. Flynn was on vacation in the Dominican Republic, but was in daily contact with McFarland. The transition team and President-elect Trump were concerned that these sanctions would harm the United States's relationship with Russia. Although the details and timing of sanctions were unknown on December 28, 2016, the media began reporting that retaliatory measures from the Obama administration against Russia were forthcoming. When asked about imposing sanctions on Russia for its alleged interference in the 2016 presidential election, President-elect Trump told the media, I think we ought to get on with our lives. Russia initiated the outreach to the transition team. This free audio is provided by MullerReportAudioBook.com. On the evening of December 28, 2016, Kislak texted Flynn, Can you kindly call me back at your convenience? Flynn did not respond to the text message that evening. Someone from the Russian embassy also called Flynn the next morning, at 10.38 a.m. But they did not talk. The sanctions were announced publicly on December 29, 2016. At 1.53 p.m. that day, McFarland began exchanging emails with multiple transition team members and advisors about the impact the sanctions would have on the incoming administration. At 2.07 p.m. A transition team member texted Flynn a link to a New York Times article about the sanctions. At 2.29 p.m., McFarland called Flynn, but they did not talk. Shortly thereafter, McFarland and Bannon discussed the sanctions. According to McFarland, Bannon remarked that the sanctions would hurt their ability to have good relations with Russia, and that Russian escalation would make things more difficult. 
McFarland believed she told Bannon that Flynn was scheduled to talk to Kislak later that night. McFarland also believed she may have discussed the sanctions with Priebus, and likewise told him that Flynn was scheduled to talk to Kislak that night. At 3.14 p.m., Flynn texted a transition team member who was assisting McFarland, time for a call. The transition team member responded that McFarland was on the phone with Tom Bossert, a transition team senior official, to which Flynn responded, tit for tat w Russia not good. Russian Ambo reaching out to me today. Flynn recalled that he chose not to communicate with Kislak about the sanctions until he had heard from the team at Mar-a-Lago. He first spoke with Michael Ledeen, a transition team member who advised on foreign policy and national security matters, for 20 minutes. Flynn then spoke with McFarland for almost 20 minutes to discuss what, if anything, to communicate to Kislak about the sanctions. On that call, McFarland and Flynn discussed the sanctions, including their potential impact on the incoming Trump administration's foreign policy goals. McFarland and Flynn also discussed that transition team members in Mar-a-Lago did not want Russia to escalate the situation. They both understood that Flynn would relay a message to Kislak in hopes of making sure the situation would not get out of hand. Immediately after speaking with McFarland, Flynn called and spoke with Kislak. Flynn discussed multiple topics with Kislak, including the sanctions, scheduling a video teleconference between President-elect Trump and Putin, an upcoming terrorism conference, and Russia's views about the Middle East. With respect to the sanctions, Flynn requested that Russia not escalate the situation, not get into a tit-for-tat, and only respond to the sanctions in a reciprocal manner. Multiple transition team members were aware that Flynn was speaking with Kislak that day. In addition to her conversations with Bannon and Reigns Priebus, at 4.43 p.m., McFarland sent an email to transition team members about the sanctions, informing the group that Jen Flynn is talking to Russian ambassador this evening. Less than an hour later, McFarland briefed President-elect Trump. Bannon, Priebus, Sean Spicer, and other transition team members were present. During the briefing, President-elect Trump asked McFarland if the Russians did it, meaning the intrusions intended to influence the presidential election. McFarland said yes, and President-elect Trump expressed doubt that it was the Russians. McFarland also discussed potential Russian responses to the sanctions, and said Russia's response would be an indicator of what the Russians wanted going forward. President-elect Trump opined that the sanctions provided him with leverage to use with the Russians. McFarland recalled that at the end of the meeting, someone may have mentioned to President-elect Trump that Flynn was speaking to the Russian ambassador that evening. After the briefing, Flynn and McFarland spoke over the phone. Flynn reported on the substance of his call with Kislak, including their discussion of the sanctions. According to McFarland, Flynn mentioned that the Russian response to the sanctions was not going to be escalatory because they wanted a good relationship with the incoming administration. Audio file 6 of the Mueller report. Prosecution and Declinatin Decisions. Volume 1. Section 5. Prosecution and Declination Decisions. The appointment order authorized the special counsel's office to prosecute federal crimes arising from its investigation of the matters assigned to it. In deciding whether to exercise this prosecutorial authority, the office has been guided by the principles of federal prosecution set forth in the justice formerly U.S. Attorney's Manual. 
In particular, the office has evaluated whether the conduct of the individuals considered for prosecution constituted a federal offense and whether admissible evidence would probably be sufficient to obtain and sustain a conviction for such an offense. Justice Manual 9-27.220-2018 where the answer to those questions was yes, the office further considered whether the prosecution would serve a substantial federal interest, the individuals were subject to effective prosecution in another jurisdiction, and there existed an adequate non-criminal alternative to prosecution. As explained below, those considerations led the office to seek charges against two sets of Russian nationals for their roles in perpetrating the active measures social media campaign and similarly determined that the contacts between campaign officials and Russia-linked individuals either did not involve the commission of a federal crime or, in the case of campaign finance offenses, that our evidence was not sufficient to obtain and sustain a criminal conviction. At the same time, the office concluded that the principles of federal prosecution supported charging certain individuals connected to the campaign with making false statements or otherwise obstructing this investigation or parallel congressional investigations. A. Russian Active Measures Social Media Campaign On February 16, 2018, a federal grand jury in the District of Columbia returned an indictment charging 13 Russian nationals and three Russian entities including the Internet Research Agency IRA and Concord Management and Consulting LLC Concord with violating U.S. criminal laws in order to interfere with U.S. elections and political processes. The indictment charges all of the defendants with conspiracy to defraud the United States count 1, three defendants with conspiracy to commit wire fraud and bank fraud count 2, and five defendants with aggravated identity theft counts 3 through 8. Internet Research Agency Indictment Concord, which is one of the entities charged in the count 1 conspiracy, entered an appearance through U.S. counsel and moved to dismiss the charge on multiple grounds. In orders and memorandum opinions issued on August 13 and November 15, 2018, the District Court denied Concord's motions to dismiss. As of this writing, the prosecution of Concord remains ongoing before the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia. The other defendants remain at large. Although members of the IRA had contact with individuals affiliated with the Trump campaign, the indictment does not charge any Trump campaign official or any other U.S. person with participating in the conspiracy. That is because the investigation did not identify evidence that any U.S. person who coordinated or communicated with the IRA knew that he or she was speaking with Russian nationals engaged in the criminal conspiracy. The office therefore determined that such persons did not have the knowledge or criminal purpose required to charge them in the conspiracy to defraud the United States count one or in the separate count alleging a wire and bank fraud conspiracy involving the IRA and two individual Russian nationals count two. The office did, however, charge one U.S. national for his role in supplying false or stolen bank account numbers that allowed the IRA conspirators to access U.S. online payment systems by circumventing those systems' security features. On February 12, 2018, Richard Pinedo pleaded guilty, pursuant to a single-count information, to identity fraud, in violation of 18 U.S.C. Plea Agreement, United States v. Richard Pinedo, No. 118-CR-24 DDC. February 12, 2018, Doc. 10. The investigation did not establish that Pinedo was aware of the identity of the IRA members who purchased bank account numbers from him. 
Pinedo's sales of account numbers enabled the IRA members to anonymously access a financial network through which they transacted with U.S. persons and companies. On October 10, 2018, Pinedo was sentenced to six months of imprisonment, to be followed by six months of home confinement, and was ordered to complete 100 hours of community service. B. Russian Hacking and Dumping Operations 1. Section 1030 Computer Intrusion Conspiracy A. Background On July 13, 2018, a federal grand jury in the District of Columbia returned an indictment charging Russian military intelligence officers from the GRU with conspiring to hack into various U.S. computers used by the Clinton campaign, DNC, DCCC, and other U.S. persons, in violation of 18 U.S.C. 1030 and 371 Count 1, committing identity theft and conspiring to commit money laundering in furtherance of that hacking conspiracy, in violation of 18 USC, and a separate conspiracy to hack into the computers of U.S. persons and entities responsible for the administration of the 2016 U.S. election, in violation of 18 U.S.C. As of this writing, all 12 defendants remain at large. The Netic Show indictment alleges that the defendants conspired with one another and with others to hack into the computers of U.S. persons and entities involved in the 2016 U.S. presidential election, steal documents from those computers, and stage releases of the stolen documents to interfere in the election. Netic Show Indictment 2 The indictment also describes how, in staging the office provided a more detailed explanation of the charging decision in this case in meetings with the office of the acting attorney general before the indictment. The releases, the defendants used the Guccifer 2.0 persona to disseminate documents through Wikileaks. This free audio is provided by MullerReportAudiobook.com. On July 22, 2016, Wikileaks released over 20,000 emails and other documents that the hacking conspirators had stolen from the DNC. Netic Show Indictment, I-48 In addition, on October 7, 2016, Wikileaks began releasing emails that some conspirators had stolen from Clinton campaign chairman John Podesta after a successful spearfishing operation. Netic Show Indictment, I-49 Harm to Ongoing Matter Redactions C. Russian government outreach and contacts. As explained in Section IV above, the office's investigation uncovered evidence of numerous links i.e., contacts between Trump campaign officials and individuals having or claiming to have ties to the Russian government. The office evaluated the contacts under several sets of federal laws, including conspiracy laws and statutes governing foreign agents who operate in the United States. After considering the available evidence, the office did not pursue charges under these statutes against any of the individuals discussed in Section IV above with the exception of FARA charges against Paul Manafort and Richard Gates based on their activities on behalf of Ukraine. One of the interactions between the Trump campaign and Russian-affiliated individuals the June 9, 2016 meeting between high-ranking campaign officials and Russians promising derogatory information on Hillary Clinton implicates an additional body of law, campaign finance statutes. Schemes involving the solicitation or receipt of assistance from foreign sources raise difficult statutory and constitutional questions. As explained below, the office evaluated those questions in connection with the June 9 meeting the office ultimately concluded that, even if the principal legal questions were resolved favorably to the government, a prosecution would encounter difficulties proving that campaign officials or individuals connected to the campaign willfully violated the law. 
Finally, although the evidence of contacts between campaign officials and Russia-affiliated individuals may not have been sufficient to establish or sustain criminal charges, several U.S. persons connected to the campaign made false statements about those contacts and took other steps to obstruct the office's investigation and those of Congress. This office has therefore charged some of those individuals with making false statements and obstructing justice. 1. Potential coordination, conspiracy and collusion. As an initial matter, this office evaluated potentially criminal conduct that involved the collective action of multiple individuals not under the rubric of collusion, but through the lens of conspiracy law. In so doing, the office recognized that the word collude appears in the Acting Attorney General's August 2, 2017 memorandum, it has frequently been invoked in public reporting, and it is sometimes referenced in antitrust law. But collusion is not a specific offense or theory of liability found in the U.S. Code, nor is it a term of art in federal criminal law. To the contrary, even as defined in legal dictionaries, collusion is largely synonymous with conspiracy as that crime is set forth in the General Federal Conspiracy Statute, 18 U.S.C. 371. See Black's Law Dictionary 321 10th ed. 2014 Collusion is an agreement to defraud another or to do or obtain something forbidden by law. 1 Alexander Burl, a law dictionary and glossary 311-1871 An agreement between two or more persons to defraud another by the forms of law, or to employ such forms as means of accomplishing some unlawful object. For that reason, this office's focus in resolving the question of joint criminal liability was on conspiracy as defined in federal law, not the commonly discussed term collusion. The office considered in particular whether contacts between Trump campaign officials and Russia-linked individuals could trigger liability for the crime of conspiracy either under statutes that have their own conspiracy language e.g., 18 U.S.C. 1349-195-LA, or under the General Conspiracy Statute 18 U.S.C. 371. The investigation did not establish that the contacts described in Volume 1, Section IV, Supra, amounted to an agreement to commit any substantive violation of federal criminal law including foreign FN fluence and campaign finance laws, both of which are discussed further below. The office therefore did not charge any individual associated with the Trump campaign with conspiracy to commit a federal offense arising from Russia contacts, either under a specific statute or under Section 371's Offenses Clause. The office also did not charge any campaign official or associate with a conspiracy under Section 371's Defraud Clause. That clause criminalizes participating in an agreement to obstruct a lawful function of the U.S. government or its agencies through deceitful or dishonest means. See Dennis v. United States, 384 U.S. 855, 861, 1966, Hammerschmidt v. United States, 265 U.S. 182, 188, 1924, see also United States v. Concord Management and Consulting LLC, 347 F SUP. 3D38, 46 DDC 2018. The investigation did not establish any agreement among campaign officials or between such officials and Russia-linked individuals to interfere with or obstruct a lawful function of a government agency during the campaign or transition period. 
and, as discussed in Volume 1, Section VA, Supra, the investigation did not identify evidence that any campaign official or associate knowingly and intentionally participated in the conspiracy to defraud that the office charged, namely, the active measures conspiracy described in Volume 1, Section 2, Supra. Accordingly, the office did not charge any campaign associate or other U.S. person with conspiracy to defraud the United States based on the Russia-related contacts described in Section IV above. 2. Potential Coordination, Foreign Agent Statutes FARA and 18 U.S.C. 951. The office next assessed the potential liability of campaign-affiliated individuals under federal statutes regulating actions on behalf of, or work done for, a foreign government. A. Governing law. Under 18 U.S.C. 951, it is generally illegal to act in the United States as an agent of a foreign government without providing notice to the Attorney General. Although the defendant must act on behalf of a foreign government as opposed to other kinds of foreign entities, the acts need not involve espionage, rather, acts of any type suffice for liability. 2005. An agent of a foreign government is an individual who agrees to operate in the United States subject to the direction or control of a foreign government or official. 18 U.S.C. 951-D. The crime defined by Section 951 is complete upon knowingly acting in the United States as an unregistered foreign government agent. 18 U.S.C. 95 La. The statute does not require willfulness, and knowledge of the notification requirement is not an element of the offense. The Foreign Agents Registration Act FARA generally makes it illegal to act as an agent of a foreign principal by engaging in certain largely political activities in the United States without registering with the Attorney General. 22 U.S.C. 611-621. The triggering agency relationship must be with a foreign principal or a person any of whose activities are directly or indirectly supervised, directed, controlled, financed, or subsidized in whole or in major part by a foreign principal. 22 U.S.C. 61 LCL. That includes a foreign government or political party and various foreign individuals and entities. 22 U.S.C. 6116. A covered relationship exists if a person acts as an agent, representative, employee, or servant or in any other capacity at the order, request, or under the foreign principal's direction or control. 22 U.S.C. 61 L.C.L. It is sufficient if the person agrees, consents, assumes or purports to act as, or who is or holds himself out to be, whether or not pursuant to contractual relationship, an agent of a foreign principal. The triggering activity is that the agent directly or through any other person in the United States one engages in political activities for or in the interests of the foreign principal, which includes attempts to influence federal officials or the public, two acts as public relations counsel, publicity agent, information service employee or political consultant for or in the interests of such foreign principal, three solicits, collects, disburses, or dispenses contributions, loans, money, or other things of value for or in in the interest of such foreign principal, or four represents the interests of such foreign principal before any federal agency or official. If we are serious about rebuilding the American middle class, my view of democratic socialism builds on the success of many other countries around the world who have done a far better job than we have in protecting